There are some things we learn in life, and there are some things we seem just to be born with. My son Clark, he is a 10-year-old little boy. He's about to be 11. He's got Down syndrome, and he is a really great example of someone who can teach you other things. You have to learn things, but he's also a good example of things that he just has innately within himself. Clark loves to be organized. Now, his version of organization takes after mine, and if you've seen my office, there are certain things that are right where they should be. They're perfectly organized. My bookshelves, my Superman paintings and statues, but as you look to the desk, you see a jumble of different things, but I know where everything in the jumble is. Clark is that same way. He has a series of treasures. He has different things that he loves, and he likes to organize things. He loves to pull out all of his Noah's Ark animals, and he loves to set up his animals, and he will beckon his sisters or his mom and myself, and he will say, look, look. He wants you to see the organization that he has put into his animals. Sometimes they're two by two. Sometimes they're a big horseshoe. He wants you to see his organization. Another thing that I've learned from Clark is that he is very, very competitive. Clark loves to win. And he understands that winning is everything. He loves it. Anytime it's time to go to bed, the way you get him to go upstairs to the bedroom, usually it's Allie. Allie will say, I'm going to win. And she pretends to go up the stairs. Oh, he can't have that. And so he races and tries to go up. Now, even if one of his sisters or his mom is already upstairs, as he goes along, he will declare, I win. He always wins. Clark always wins. He wants to be first place all the time. We need to make sure that we have the right thing in first place all the time in our lives. Today, as we continue our sermon series through the book of Colossians, if you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn open to Colossians chapter 1 today. If not, fear not. I'll put the text on the screen behind me. We're going to learn about who and what should be in first place. In the New Testament, there are a lot of fantastic texts. Today's is unique. In the Bible, there are a lot of passages in Scripture that highlight the importance of Jesus or that talk about the nature and the will of God. This text that we explore today is the pinnacle of New Testament Christology. There is no text anywhere in the Bible that has a higher view of Jesus than then the chapter, first chapter of Colossians. This text has the power to radically organize your life in a powerful way so that he who should always win will always win. Follow along in your favorite translation. I'm going to read for you today from the Legacy Standard Bible. And if you are able, would you please stand in honor and awe of God's Word? Colossians chapter 1, verses 5, or 15 through 23. Rather. The Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For in Him all things were created both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. And he is before all things. And in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, 
so that he himself will come to have first place in everything. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile all things to himself, having made peace through the blood of his cross, through him, whether things on earth or things in heaven. And although you were formerly alienated and enemies in mind and in evil deeds, but now he reconciled you in the body of his flesh through death in order to present you before him holy and blameless and beyond reproach, if indeed you continue in the faith, firmly grounded and steadfast and not moved away from the hope of the gospel, which you've heard, which was proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, was a minister. The word of the Lord. You may be seated. This text really does have a lot for us. And the primary thing we have to understand is that Jesus is God. The most important question that any man can ask himself, the most important question that any person can answer, is who is Jesus? Jesus, one day, gathered his disciples. He took them up the Mount of Transfiguration, his inner three. He took these three disciples with him, and he revealed his full nature. He revealed his true and divine glory unto them. And as he descended the mountain with them, he gathered the rest of his disciples and he asked them this question, who do people say that I am? And they chirped up and said, well, some say you're John the Baptist. And others say that you're Elijah. Some say that you're a mighty prophet. And he cuts through all of that and he says, but what about you? Who do you say that I am? Peter, chief spokesman of the apostles, says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus affirms the truth of this statement. Jesus is the Christ. He is the Messiah. He is God's chosen vessel. He is the son of God, but sometimes we don't understand what that means. The Son of God does not mean in some esoteric sense that Jesus is somehow below or less than God. Saying that he is the Son of God is making the claim in no uncertain terms that Jesus is God. Our text today makes this abundantly clear. Walk away today knowing that Jesus is Yahweh in the flesh, that Jesus is God Almighty, clothed in human flesh, come to earth to save us. He is the one we worship. And so today, let's analyze our text. Let's go through verse by verse, line by line, clause by clause, and figure out the meaning of this important Christological text for us today. Colossians 1, verse 15. The Son is the image of the invisible God. The sun is the image. The Greek word for image is icon, and we all know what it is to be an icon. An icon is someone who best represents something else. Image. Image is very, very important. Everybody is concerned with his image, but maybe the highlight of the one concerned with image was my very favorite tennis player, Andre Agassi. 
Now, I remember the first time really understanding Andre Agassi and his greatness when he was the bald-headed, appropriately length-shirted man who would stand inside the baseline. Andre had the very best return game of all time. Whereas most guys would stand three feet behind the baseline, Agassi would put his heels on the inside of the baseline. No one returned to serve better in tennis in the history of the world than Andre Agassi. And as I got really excited about Andre Agassi, he just won the career Grand Slam. I started looking into it and I realized, oh, he used to look very different. Yeah, back in the 80s, Andre was really, really big in the 80s and 90s into image. He had long flowing hair, and he would wear shirts that were inappropriately short so that every time he would take a backhand or a forehand, you could see his ripped abs. In fact, he became the spokesman for a camera company, and the slogan was, image is everything. Oh, and he lived it. He lived it, dating Brooke Shields, all kinds of different stuff. Image was everything. And then Andre Agassi came to Christ. He married Steffi Graf, and he went on to win the career Grand Slam as what I think of when I think of Andre Agassi now. The bald-headed guy wearing his earring, getting ready to return the best serves in the world. Image. When the text tells us that the sun is the image of the invisible God, we should think automatically about how he, the sun, Jesus, is the exact representation of God's being. Being the image of God, the invisible God, should automatically take our mind back to the very first book of the Bible, the book of Genesis, where in chapter 1, verse 26 and 27, God, using the first person plural pronoun, says, let us make mankind in our image. Male and female, let us make them. And so God made mankind in his image. Male and female, he made them. Human beings are made in the image of God, and the Son is the image of God. The difference between Jesus and us is that we are made in his image. He is the image from which we are made. He is the image of the invisible God. The Bible tells us that no one has ever seen God the Father. No one has ever seen God. And yet Jesus is the exact representation of his divine being. He is the image that we can see. And so when you think of God, you should see Jesus. He is the member of the Trinity that we see. He is the image of the invisible God and the firstborn of all creation. The word firstborn is very, very important here because unlike modern day understanding, firstborn doesn't just mean the priority in terms of linear birth. It has everything to do with rank and significance. Two twins in the Bible that were born at the same time, one came out first and he became the firstborn. And yet, his younger brother, by just a few minutes, swindled him for his birthright. You know the story of Jacob and Esau. Firstborn means the one through whom the inheritance is reckoned. The firstborn of creation means that God, who establishes everything will allow Jesus, God the Son, to have all the inheritance. He's the one who gets all of it. It is all for him. And just as a father may leave a house or a father may leave a company or a family may have a trust for their family, the firstborn is the one of rank, priority, order, the one through whom it is all reckoned. He is the trustee of all of it. And of what is Jesus the firstborn? 
all of creation. This does not mean that he was somehow created by God. No, no. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit are the three co-equal, co-eternal members of the Trinity. When you think of God, we should understand that God is the all-knowing, all-powerful, morally perfect, eternal, necessary, and triune master of reality. He exists as one being, and this one being is personal, but he's not merely personal. He's tri-personal. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit are the three divine persons of the Trinity. And God has revealed his nature to us through creation, through his word, and he's even revealed his personal name to us so that we might have a personal relationship with him. Yahweh is his name. He is not merely some higher power. He is a very personal, a tri-personal God. And God the Son is the second person of the Trinity. And he is the one who gets all the inheritance. Verse 16 tells us, For in him all things were created. This should again call our attention back to the book of Genesis. We all know the opening line to the Bible, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. And yet here in Colossians 1.16 we understand who it was that did the creating. In him, all things were created. When the Bible says in Genesis 1-3, and God said, let there be light, the one speaking is the Son, the second person of the Trinity, the Word. John 1-1 tells us, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The Word, the divine rationality and wisdom of the eternal God spoke. The one who speaks is the Word. In him, all things were created. It is Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, God the Son, who is the one through whom creation was made. He is the mechanism of creation. In him, all things were created, both in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. He is the creator, not just of the physical realm, but of the spiritual realm. He is the one who spoke angels into existence. He is the one who spoke light into existence. He is the one who organized all reality for us. It doesn't matter if that reality includes thrones or dominions, rulers or authorities, for these are all catchphrases for all the power structures of the world. Things that are visible and invisible, not just entities, but structures. Every government that has ever existed only exists because he allows it to exist. And you might think immediately, well, what about all the bad governments? God can even use bad guys to accomplish his purpose. God used the Egyptians to enslave his people to demonstrate his own mighty power. God used the Assyrians to smash Jerusalem. God used the Babylonians to come and take away his people. God used the Roman Empire so that the entire gospel could spread to the entire world. God is in control of it all. God the Son, through whom all things were made. In fact, there's the reminder sentence. All things have been created through him. All things have been created through him. Now, in this one verse, we have three really important phrases, and they are in him, through him, and for him. Three times in one verse, we have him. In him, all things are created. All things have been created through him. But here's the kicker, for him. 
God the Son is the one for whom all of this was made. All of this was for him. It was for his glory to be shown. And after the resurrection, after Jesus is raised from the dead, having died on the cross for our sins, he declares, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. It is all for him, for it is all through him. It was all in him. It came to be in the first place. This is why we are Christians. Christ. The word Christian means little follower of Jesus. It used to be an insult. You'd call somebody a Christian. Oh, you're just some little Christ running around following your big Christ. Yeah, that's exactly right. The name stuck. We're little Christs running around following the one who's in charge of it all. And he is in charge of it all. In fact, verse 17 tells us that he's before all of it. Establishing the eternal nature of the Son, God the Father did not create God the Son. The Bible tells us that he's the only begotten Son. He's of the very nature of the Father. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are the three co-equal, co-eternal members of the Trinity. He is before all things. He exists outside of creation, for he is the agent through which creation came to be. And in fact, in him, all things hold together. Now, some of you in science class or some of you in understanding the apologetic realm know that it doesn't make sense that everything holds together. Think about a nucleus and think about the protons thereof. These positively charged protons should bounce off of each other like two positively charged magnets. They should not be able to attract. They should push each other away. And yet, the order of the universe is that they all hold together. It's because everything is made in him, through him, and for him. He's the one who holds and sustains everything together. Everything is held together through him. Jesus holds the whole world together. Verse 18 declares that he is the head of the body. It's not just the world, very specifically, he's the head of the body, the church. He's the head of the church. Everything we do is under the organizational structure of Jesus. He is the head. He is the source. He is the foundation. He is the preeminence. He is everything. He's the chief shepherd. Jesus is the one who tells the church what to do. For Jesus purchased the church with his own blood. Jesus is the head of the church. And so woe to any man who fancies himself a shepherd and then seeks to go against the will of the chief shepherd. There are some churches who step away from the will of the chief shepherd and they say, even though his word declares this, it's time for God to get with the times. And this is now really what it means. Any church who does this has stepped outside of the authority of the chief shepherd, the head, who is uh, the church and has decided to go at it alone, going at it alone will only lead to death. Only by staying and abiding in the one who holds all things together can we have life. Now, he is the head of the church, and one of the reasons is because he's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. Here we have for the second time in our text the word firstborn. Jesus is not only the firstborn of creation, meaning that all of it is reckoned through him, all the inheritance of all the created realm, but he's firstborn from among the dead. This means that he is the very first one to receive the resurrection body. He came back from the dead never to die again. 
Now, Jesus raised lots of people from the dead. He raised Lazarus. He raised a little girl uh, from the dead saying, Talitha Kum. Jesus raised lots of people from the dead. But the weird and bizarre thing is that they all went on to die again. They had to experience death, earthly death, a second time. Jesus is the only one who's been raised from the dead never to die again. That's what it means to be resurrected. And so it is that every Jew in the first century who believed in the supernatural, who believed in the resurrection, knew that it would happen at the end of time and to everybody at the same time. And yet, strangely and peculiarly enough, Jesus was raised from the dead before the end of time by himself. This was to show us what was to come, and this serves as the foundation for the hope that we have in the gospel. He was raised from the dead And by stepping into humanity, stepping off the throne room of heaven, stepping into humanity, being clothed in human flesh so that he could live and die for us and then be raised from the dead, all this was so that he would come to have first place. Jesus must be first place. But make no mistake about it. His preeminence must be in everything. Jesus must be first place in everything. And this is where some Christians go off the rails. Sometimes we think about the organizational structure of our lives, and we think, I know what I'll do. I'll prioritize really, really well. Here's the order. Jesus, number one. Gotcha. And then family. And then career. And then friends. And then hobbies. And then whatever else. And we order our life and we think as long as God is number one, we think as long as Jesus is number one, then everything is going to work out. But that's not how it goes. Because in our lives, you know the human tendency to compartmentalize. We seek to compartmentalize different things. And so we open on Sunday morning the Jesus box. And we do good Jesus stuff. But then Sunday closes and we put him back in. And then we open our stuff Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, and Saturday. That is not at all what the Christian life is supposed to look like. The book of Colossians will take painstaking efforts later to show us what the Christian life should look like, and in everything, Jesus should have first place. So I understand the tendency among believers to rank and organize and prioritize Jesus number one, and then other stuff two, three, four, and five. But what I'm here to tell you is that's actually wrong. That's actually wrong because that will lead to doing our Jesus stuff and then doing our other stuff because we've already done Jesus stuff. We've already gone to church, got stuff check. Now it's time to do career stuff. Now it's time to do family stuff. That is not how you make Jesus first place in everything. In order to be first place in everything, he is not merely first place overall. He must be first place in your career. He must be first place in your relationships. He must be first place in your family. He must be first place in your sobriety. He must be first place in your friendships. He must be first place in your hobbies. He must be first place in your politics. He must be first place in everything. So there is a way that we can think about Jesus being first place in everything. I want you to imagine your life like a wheel. Think about it like a bicycle wheel or a car wheel. Sometimes the rubber is going to meet the road, and oh, we better be ready. Here's how you make Jesus first place in everything. You put him at the very center of your life. Imagine your life like a wheel, and at the very center of the wheel is the hub. Jesus must be the hub of this wheel. And there are many spokes from which come 
from the center to the outside of the wheel. These are the spokes of our lives. We might have the spoke of our career. And so we think about our career. If Jesus is going to be first place in everything, he must be at the very center. So as we focus on our career, and as the wheel turns, and as the rubber meets the road when it comes to our career, is Jesus first place in our career? And sometimes he's not. Sometimes we say, no, no, I've already, I've already worshipped Jesus on Sunday. Now it's my time. I need to go provide. That is not making him the center. Making him the center means putting him first place in everything, even in your career. And so if your career is such that you don't get to make Jesus first place, then I don't know that that's the career for you. Jesus is supposed to be first place in your career. Well, then you come home from your job and the rubber meets the road and, oh, it's going to be stressful at home. You've got family stuff. It's not Jesus' first place and then you do career and then you do family stuff. No, you come home and if he's the center of your life, if he's the hub from which the spokes funnel, then when the rubber meets the road, when it comes to family stuff, Jesus is first place in your family. Does your family know that Jesus is first place? He must be first place at home, not just at church. Not just at work. Well, then it comes to your hobbies or your politics. And then you start watching the news and your day goes on and you start getting angry and you want to get on social media and you want to light somebody up. And so the rubber meets the road and the wheel turns and now this part of your life, the wheel is on the road. Is Jesus first place in your politics? Is Jesus first place in your hobbies? When you're watching the game, is Jesus first place? When you're watching the news, is Jesus first place? He must be at the center of your life in order to be first place in everything. Because if you only put him in first place in terms of priority, when you move on to second, third, fourth, and fifth, you leave him behind. First place in everything means putting him at the center of everything. The center of who you are so that he can be first place in everything. This is how we organize the Christian life. Clark might think he always wins when he goes up the stairs. I win. Jesus should be able to say, when it comes to your life, I win. When it comes to your love, I win. When it comes to your fun, I win. When it comes to your family, your career, whatever it might be, Jesus needs to say, I win. Well, verse 19 explains the reasoning why. For in him the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. The very fullness of God. Make no mistake about it. Jesus is not some half-god like Hercules of Greek mythology. He's not the son of Zeus and of a human person. No, no. Jesus is God the Son. He is the fullness of God. Yahweh in the flesh. The fullness of God was pleased to dwell in him. The very fullness of God. There is nothing that the Father is that Jesus is not. There is nothing that the Spirit is that Jesus is not. He is entirely co-equal and co-powerful and co-eternal with the other persons of the Trinity. The fullness of God is in Jesus. And God was pleased to have it there. Think of a time in Scripture where Jesus demonstrated great pleasure and God the Father announced it. Think about the time Jesus was baptized. His cousin, John the Baptist, had just baptized Jesus to fulfill all righteousness. 
Later, Jesus would go on not only to have example baptism, but to command baptism, and he would tell us to baptize all nations, even, in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And here, having demonstrated an example baptism to fulfill all righteousness, he emerges from the water, and what descends on him in the form of a dove? But the Holy Spirit. And God the Father follows God the Spirit and shouts aloud from heaven, This is my Son in whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. The fullness of God was pleased to dwell in Jesus. He is 100% divine. He's also 100% human. And here's how that works out. Remember Genesis 1, 26 and 27? Let us make mankind in our image, in the image of God, let us make them. And then human, humankind is made. We are made in the image of God. Jesus is the image of God. In order to be a human being, you must be a soul in the image of God and you must have a hominid body. Now, we are all made in the image of God, of God, and we all have a hominid body. Jesus is the image of God, so as soon as he took on a specially created, miraculously created, hominid body, he also became fully human. Jesus is 100% human, 100% divine. He has two complete and distinct natures. This is Jesus Christ, God in the flesh. Verse 20 tells us that through him, he would reconcile all things to himself. Reconciliation is a very, very important word. In fact, it's synonymous with another important R word used earlier in verse 14, or verse 13 and 14 of Colossians, where we have the redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Redemption and reconciliation go hand in hand, for redemption is a financial term whereby you purchase something back. It is redeemed. Reconciliation is also a financial term whereby things come to balance out. Back in the olden days before online banking, people had to actually reconcile their check register. They would see all the money coming in and all the money going out and they would make sure it lined up so that you had a balanced or reconciled checkbook. Only there's one problem. There is no way to balance or reconcile our sin with God's holiness, for the wages of sin is death. There is no amount of good that any man could ever do to equal or reconcile himself with God, but through him to reconcile all things to himself, that's how it would happen. The only way you can be reconciled, balanced with God, at one with him, is through Jesus, having made peace through the blood of his cross. You heard Clay's communion meditation on peace. Peace is the goal of the epistle. Peace is what Paul, that mighty apostle, and his protege, Timothy, said they wanted. Grace to you and peace with God Almighty. The only way that you can achieve peace at oneness with God is through the blood of his cross. And the reason is simple. Each of us have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. None of us can overcome our sinfulness, even if we did only good things from now on, always, 24-7, never sleeping, never doing anything but good things for God. We cannot make up even for one sin. For one sin against an infinite God requires an infinite penalty, and that penalty is death. The wages of sin is death, and the only way that you can pay for your sin is death. 
You cannot pay for it with good deeds. But if you pay for it with death, then you're dead. But God doesn't want you to die. He wants you to live. He wants you to live forever. And so what he does is awesome. God the Father sends God the Son to earth to be a man, to live a perfect and sinless life, and to die upon the cross, shedding his blood. Blood is very important for blood. is the very mechanism of atonement that God created in order for God to be both love and holy, to be both just and the one who justifies. God had to pay for sin himself. If he just wiped the slate clean, if he said, every debt is forgiven, that would not make God holy That would not make God just. That would make God a fool. And God is no fool. And so the only way to equal things out, the only way to redeem us and reconcile us was for God to become man, to become one of us, to die upon the cross, to have his blood shed for us, and then be raised from the dead, for death cannot hold God himself. And because he did this, and he is a human, he can die for a human. But because he is the fullness of God, In humanity, he can die for all humanity. Jesus can die for me, he can die for you, and he can die for anyone who has ever or will ever believed because Jesus is fully divine. That means the one man, Jesus, who is God in the flesh, Yahweh saves, can save anyone who believes for his blood can cover all of us. And when his blood covers us, oh, that changes everything. It changes everything. In fact, the Bible tells us that although you were formerly alienated, enemies in mind and in evil deeds, the blood will change everything. You used to be enemies, and some of you can remember your BC days. Some of you remember how it was before coming to Christ. I sure do. I was a teenager in Columbia, Missouri, and it was not good. I was a jerk a major atheist jerk. And every day at Rockbridge High School, when people would come and invite me to church, I would pick my favorite Christians, usually girls, and I would make fun of them, mock them and belittle them and ask them questions that they didn't know how to answer. And I would point right at them and I would seek to pluck their faith. And I was pretty good at it. Every day my junior year, or every week my junior year of high school, Girls would invite me to church, and every week my junior year of high school, I came up with new and creative ways to insult them and say, no, God's stuff is stupid. You can't be smart like I am and a Christian at the same time. I'd convinced myself of this because I'd heard Christians say, God is love, God is forgiveness, God is good, but that didn't seem to reconcile with what I experienced in the world, all the pain, all the addiction, all the hatred, all the suffering. And so I figured, if God is good, like they said, then he must not be powerful enough to deal with all the bad. And if God is powerful enough to deal with all the bad, he must not be loving enough to do it because I see all this bad. And so I built for myself an intellectual defense, and I built this intellectual armor that I wore, and then I would hide all my emotional discontent behind it. And I was good at it. I never met a Christian who was as smart as I was until... I met Joe, my youth minister. Well, he pulled me aside one day and he said, kid, it's time to pick on someone your own size. And he's like 6'4", college basketball player, he's really strong. And so if he wanted to have a physical fight, he would have knocked me out cold. But he wanted to have a spiritual fight. And I said, all right, this I can handle. And so for three weeks we fought, we argued, we complained. I griped and groaned and I reasoned against the faith and he reasoned and contended for it. And I was blown away because I met this man 
who was demonstrating compassion to me. Like, he was nice to me. He would buy me lunch, and he would invite me to his office. And even though I was a jerk, he was kind. And he was also smarter than I was. He was the first smart Christian that knew how to answer my questions. And after three weeks of debating with him, he finally convinced me that Jesus had, in fact, raised from the dead, and he baptized me in February of 1999. And I'm so grateful that he did. I'm so grateful that he did because in doing so, I was transferred from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of the Son of God, into the kingdom of light. I used to be an enemy in my mind and in my evil deeds, and I had plenty of evil deeds. Oh, I had plenty of evil deeds. But now, things changed. Now, he reconciled you in the body of his flesh through death. He reconciled you. He died on the cross for you out of love while you were still a sinner. And when I realized this, I was blown away and I accepted him. He did this in order to present you. He did this in order to present me as holy, blameless, and beyond reproach. Now look, left to my own, I am not holy. But because of him, I am holy. Holy means set apart, separated. And he took me from the kingdom of the darkness. And he put me into the kingdom of the son of his love, of the kingdom of light. And he reckons me as holy. He reckons me as blameless. Although I know by myself I am not blameless. I am not blameless at all. I have done lots and lots of bad things. And he reckons me now as above reproach, beyond reproach. But I know that by myself I am not beyond reproach. I know that by myself I am still a sinful man. I lust. I have greed, I have anger, and I have pride. These are the big four in my life. These are the sins with which I continue to struggle. And yet, God does not reckon me based on the merit of my sin or my goodness. He reckons me based on the merit of Christ's righteousness. It was his blood that was shed on the cross. It was the blood of his cross that covers me when I placed my faith in him. When I placed my faith in him, when I said I accept in my heart that God raised Jesus from the dead, I was justified. And now, in collaboration with the Holy Spirit, I seek to live a life of sanctification. I am not beyond reproach without God. I am not blameless without Christ. I am not holy without Jesus. But because of what he did for me, I am reckoned as holy, blameless, and beyond reproach. Exactly what a good sacrifice needs to be. And this can be for you too, if you continue in the faith, firmly grounded and steadfast. Now, faith means belief, trust, and loving obedience. If you accept in your head and believe in your heart that God raised Jesus from the dead, trusting that he will do what he said he'll do, then you are willing to step in faith. You're willing to walk in a manner worthy of him. After all, the Bible says that faith without action is dead. Faith needs to be followed through in action. And so faith is belief, it's trust, it's loving obedience, it's head, heart, and hands. And if you're grounded and steadfast, not moved away from the hope of the gospel, remember the hope is resurrection. Jesus died on the cross for our sins and was raised again from the dead. He was resurrected. And someday, we too will be resurrected. We have hope. We have hope that will be finalized in our salvation. Away from the sinful nature, And we will spend eternity in his nature. We will dwell in him just as the fullness of God dwells in him. We will get to dwell in his presence. This is the hope of the gospel, which you've heard, which was proclaimed to all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, and now even I, Andrew, 
was made a minister. I'm not worthy of the gospel, but I seek to walk in a manner worthy of the gospel because it was not my worthiness that saved me. It was his grace that saved me and gave me peace with God. And now I can follow him. And I think you can too. I think you can too. So here's what I'd love for you to do. If you are a man, woman, or child who has not accepted the Lord Jesus Christ, I want you today to ask yourself, who is Jesus? And if Jesus is God, then when we get done singing this last song, I want you to come down and find me, and I'll hand you a mic, and you can shout it out to this whole congregation. Jesus is God. Yahweh saves, and he saved even me. If you already believe that, maybe today's the day you need to join this congregation. If you're already a part of this congregation or just a visitor and you want prayer, come down during this last song and pray with me. I'd love to do that. But as to the rest of you, here's what I want you to do. I want you to read Colossians 1, 15 through 23, five times. Five times this week. Meditating on it and praying about it. Read these verses. Meditate on them and pray about them. And then I want you to memorize Colossians 1, 15 and 16. The Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For in him all things were created, whether things, are, uh, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were made through him and for him. And I want you to understand Jesus is God. He's part of Yahweh's very nature. And so ask yourself in this life, is Jesus first place in everything? If you've already said Jesus is God and you've accepted the grace and you're saved, this is now the question. Is he first place in everything? If so, he must be at the very center of who you are. Stand with me as we pray. Dear Yahweh, we love you. Thank you for re revealing your nature and your name to us. Please, don't just take our word for it. We're not just giving you lip service. Please see it in our actions. See it as we read your word. See it as we memorize your word. See it as we pray and meditate and contemplate. See it as we make disciples. See it as we seek to walk in a manner worthy of you. That's how much we love you, Yahweh. Thank you, Yahweh saves, for coming down to earth and dying on the cross for us. You're the very best. You're the very center of who we are. We love you, and we pray in your perfect name. Amen. Thank you, guys. We love you.